1: Hi, I'm so glad you're here. The Covenant of Water is truly one of the most gripping, exquisite novels I have ever read, and I've been reading since I was three. It's my 101st book club pick. I'm so enthralled with this epic story, I think of it as a modern masterpiece. And now I'm excited for you to hear our captivating conversation with the brilliantly talented author, Dr. Abraham
2: Verghese. What an honor to be with you. On
1: this six-part podcast, we're diving into all 10 parts of The Covenant of Water. That is the best, bye (laughs) Felicia moment I ever read. (laughs) We'll also hear from readers like you.
0: What was the hard truth that you hope to convey in writing this
2: book? Hmm. Well, thank you for that very thoughtful question. Come along with me on a soulful, extraordinary
1: journey through adventure, family secrets, medical mysteries, romance, and finally, the shimmering resilience of the human spirit. This is The Covenant of Water, the podcast. Hi, everybody. I am so Excited. I really, it was hard for me to sleep last night to be with you all on this Super Soul podcast, because I know that you all uh, who've been with me on Super Soul for so many years are really going to appreciate this book, The Covenant of Water, and this special series. And welcome to all of our new listeners who love to read, or you just love this book, my 101st book club selection, The Covenant of the covenant the covenant i love saying it the covenant of water and every time i try to describe it i have to tell you i become Klimt because i'm trying to come up with the um the 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 the, the words that are going to leave the best impression and i just haven't been able to do it the person who has come the closest i think is poet and author Honoré fanon jeffers who wrote a blurb for the book and she said what a sure faith this novel is what an agreement with language what a glorious story of land and family what a brilliant path written across generations ah, well said Ms. jeffers you know i think of the covenant of water as a spiritual revelation a soulful, mystical experience from the first sentence to the very last. So appropriate that w- we would be discussing the themes of the characters in the book here on SuperSoul. So I am here in my tea house right now with the author, Dr. Abraham Verghese. Hello and welcome. How are you? I'm so good and so glad to have you here. It's an honor to be able to sit with you for this conversation, particularly in this space that I love so much. And if you're listening to this podcast, please know that the reason why I'm doing it is so that we can delve as deep as we want to. We're gonna be discussing the plot points and many of the shocking twists and turns on this podcast. So this is the first episode of our six part series. And I wanted to start by talking with Dr. Verghese about his remarkable life, his creative process, and how this masterpiece came to be. We're gonna also hear questions from many of you along the way. So let's get started. So when I first got a a galley copy of your book, there there was a note to readers in that galley that you had written saying, I hope you find the covenant of water to your liking. I feel quite blessed to put it in your hands. And I know that it took you almost 14 years to write this. What has it felt like to release it into
2: the world? Well, first of all, what an honor to be with you. And uh, would you please call me Abraham? Because I will call you Abraham. Dr. Rickys makes me feel like this old fuddy daddy in a white coat, <laughs> which I can be at times. But uh, it is a blessing because I think um, there were times when I wondered whether the story would ever see the light of day. Uh, it had struggled a little bit. And so to arrive at this moment after many, many years of solitary work and solitude where I'm presenting it to a listener felt very, very special. And then for that listener, among the many listeners, readers, for it to be you was just beyond belief. So really thrilled.
0: Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meve. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or roundup in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts.
1: And now that it is released into the world and people are reacting to
2: it, wh- what does that feel like? It's actually very special. And each reader is very special. Yeah. Because I have the sense that, you know, I provide the words and they took me a long time to select and put mm-hmm. out there. But the reader does me this great honor of providing their imagination. Mm. And collaboratively, in middle space, we made this mental movie happen in their head. Mm-hmm. So every single reader has their unique little take on it. And um, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of getting a little window into how everybody else has reacted to the story, very specifically to them, very specific to them.
1: Well, I think one of the reasons it may have taken so long to write is because you have quite the day job, sir. <laughs> So not only are you four times New York Times bestselling author, but you are an infectious disease physician, a professor and vice chairman of the theory and practice of medicine at Stanford University. You're a podcast host and a TED Talk sensation, y'all. If you have not heard his TED Talk on The Doctor's Touch, you must. And a recipient of the National Humanities Medal. So tell us this is what I want to know, is how are you able to compartmentalize uh, from attending physicians, still doing rounds one day a week, teaching and all that you do to find the time to write? Where are all the compartments in your head?
2: You know, to be quite honest, when I hear you describe me that way and I hear people describe me that way, it doesn't really feel like they're talking about me because... You know, my, my first and only ambition in life was to be a physician, and it's completely fulfilling. And my ambition to write came out of a very, very moving episode in my medical career where I felt the language of science didn't quite capture what I felt and what patients felt. Uh, but I, I feel like I walk through this world and I'm all physician. I'm not one thing at one time and one thing another time the lens I bring to the world, um, whether it's to the page or to people, is the same lens, it's the same outlook. Um, It's it's an outlook that's inquisitive. Mm -hmm. It's interested and deeply interested in what's making something work. Mm -hmm. It's looking for pieces of the puzzle about a person or about a piece of writing Mm -hmm. that brings it together. So I don't feel I wear many different hats, to be quite honest.
1: Okay. So you don't feel that you're doing it, but I you mean, ha- you actually had to do it. You actually, because you were writing the book and also still doing your day job. Yes. Right. So how does that work? You come home, you stop and pick up something at the Safeway <laughs> or bonds. How, how, does, how does that work?
2: Yeah, it works exactly, as you said, I I come home. I'm, I'm not as busy as I was in my younger days. I have a lot more administrative role and less mm-hmm. of the... Front line role, frontline But, you know, I have enough. I come home and I'm... But you're up, still at work. I'm much at work. And I come home, wind down a little bit, and when I've put out household fires, I mean, I largely live alone. My sons are grown up and, uh, you know, are out in the world. And at a certain point, I just settle down to write. Typically evenings. The only thing I don't w- wait for is inspiration. I, I love Somerset Mom's famous quote. He says, I wait for inspiration to strike. Fortunately, it strikes at 9 a.m. every morning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so have you, in your own reading life, loved big volume books?
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, I've always loved books, period. I mean, books are what brought me to medicine. Uh, Books made me think of medicine as this grand, romantic, adventurous pursuit that would fulfill me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yes, I've always loved Big epic stories. Uh, to me, the magic of a big novel, but really any novel, but especially a big novel, is you enter this portal and you live several lifetimes, decades, and you come back after this long, long experience, and it's still Tuesday. And that's the yeah, magic yeah, that yeah, I yeah, just yeah. relish.
1: You know what I love about every one of your books, nonfiction and fiction. And I would have to say to all of you that I read The Covenant of Water. I was one of those people who was new to uh, Abraham Verghese's work. I knew of The Cutting for Stone, but I had not read it. And when I finished The Covenant of Water, I needed somewhere else to go. I still wanted to hear your voice. I still wanted to be in your world. And I wasn't ready for cutting yet. So I went to your first book my own country, and then I went to the tennis partner, and then I was ready for Cutting for Stone. So I felt like it's really gonna be difficult, I think, challenging for those of you, when you finish The Covenant of Water, you don't know what to do with yourself. You're gonna need somewhere to go. And if you haven't read all of Abraham's other books, I would suggest any of them. There seems to be a deep reverence and awe for the experience of doctoring, in all of your books. Do you feel that awe with every patient on a regular basis often?
2: Yes, I think I do. I mean, there are occasions where a patient might try you, but to me, the whole experience of, the privilege of being a physician is humbling. You know, I think, uh, especially in the hospital, which is where, when I see patients, it's mostly uh, hospitalized patients. Mm -hmm. And I always have the sense when I'm washing my hands outside the room, that I'm about to enter sacred space. I have to actually remind myself of that. So I I like the washing hands ritual because I am an infectious disease person. But it's also a moment to pause and remind yourself that no matter what else is going on, as you enter that room, you've got to leave it behind because you're entering sacred space. Now, this is an old-fashioned term for what we do. It's called the ministry of healing. And I, I sort of feel that. I feel this is a... A calling sometimes it is hard to sustain in our technologically advanced world mm-hmm. but you know one human being to another, one caring for another who's in distress, you know it is a it is a soulful you know tremendously personal experience yeah.
1: how did you know
2: that medicine was it for you? Was it a moment, a feeling it was a moment it was actually a moment in a book and um For a generation of us, it wasn't uncommon for a book to call you to medicine. In America, that book was Arrowsmith by Sinclair Lewis. But in the Commonwealth in the UK, it was um, The Citadel by A.J. Cronin. But for me, it was The Citadel partly, but it was also this book called Of Human Bondage, Mm. where this young boy, Philip, wants to be an artist. goes to Paris to fulfill his ambition, but finds he doesn't have the talent. And he comes back with his tail between his legs and has enough money to enter the professional school. And he goes to medical school. The first two years are drudgery. And then he comes to the wards. And Somerset Moham describes that moment. Philip saw humanity there in the rough, the artist's canvas. And he said to himself, This is something I can be good at. And those words just like, you know, just hit me. You know, they just felt like they were written for me. But I found my calling with this book. Uh, You know, uh, Kafka writes about fiction is like the ax that breaks the ice of the frozen sea of one's soul. That was the feeling I had with those words. I just suddenly felt like not everybody could be a great mathematician or artist. But anybody with a curiosity about the human condition, uh, an empathy for the human condition, mm-hmm. which I think I thought I had, and a willingness to work hard could be a good physician. So that's what I took away. And I really had no higher ambition than that. It was a very fulfilling ambition. It still is, mm. Yeah, you know, if you're very satisfied with that.
1: No, I, I, I've heard you say several times now that you consider yourself first and foremost a doctor even with four four best-selling works books well,
2: you know i was reminded recently that this is kind of disingenuous for me to keep saying that because i'm on oprah's podcast for god's <laughs> sakes you know i'm not here because i'm a physician so i recognize it's disingenuous i'm a writer and proud of the fact that i produced this book But in my soul in the darkness. Oh, that's the
1: first time I've heard you say I'm a writer, actually. That's pretty good. I am Uh a writer.
2: But I'm I'm also a writer who's looking out to the world through the lens of this ministry of of taking care of people.
1: I love this passage on page two fifty-three where Rune says, before retiring, Rune smokes a last pipe on the veranda taking in the night sounds. The misty veil above him parts to reveal stars, the sky so low he feels he can extend a hand and touch the robe of God. That's just such a beautiful sentence. He's at peace, the chest pains that trouble him, he is quite sure are angina, but he accepts this with equanimity. He's living his faith, his amalgam of Christianity and Hindu philosophy. Medicine is his true priesthood, a ministry of healing the body, and the soul of his flock. He will go on as long as he is able.
2: Wow. It's actually powerful to hear you read that to me because I hadn't reflected on how closely they echo what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that was conscious, but I'm sure it was. But I think it's true, you know, we are, we are, we are healing ourselves as much as we're healing others, you know, and we're We're in this profession partly to heal our own woundedness, our own brokenness, and to care for others is an easy way to do it.
1: Well, after med school in India, you came to the United States and started a residency in rural Tennessee. That's what my own country is all about. And one of our readers, Karen, is a physician herself. And Karen has a question about that.
0: I was wondering if you could talk more about your medical career path. uh, What led you to return to the U.S. for your residency and fellowship after completing your studies in India? And if you could discuss your time working with HIV and AIDS patients in a rural setting, how do these experiences affect your perspectives and your career trajectory as both a physician and a writer?
2: Well, thank you for that question, Karen. I I actually began medical school in Ethiopia. And in my third year, uh, the emperor was deposed civil war broke out and I had to leave and I came to America and I worked as an orderly for a year and a half, a nursing assistant in New Jersey. And Uh, in the book, orderlies are like probationers. That's what probationers are called in the book. Probationers are more like nursing trainees. Okay. I was like a nursing assistant. I was, you know, the bedpan and urinal brigade is what I was. Uh, But, you know, I, I look back on that now as the most powerful medical education I ever had because I saw what happens to the patient in the, in the 23 hours and 55 minutes that the doctors are not in the room. Mm. And it has given me a great solidarity with my colleagues in nursing, uh, you know, and anybody who's caring for the patient directly. And then, you know, cause I, I couldn't get back into a US medical school because in many parts of the world, you go straight from high school to pre-med to med school. So I went to India after a year and a half, the Indian government allowed me in as a displaced person to finish medical school. So I finished my last three years in Madras. And then I came back to the U.S. because by then I was acclimatized to the United States. This is the place Mm -hmm. for the best medical training. My parents were here. And so that's why I, I came back, Karen, if that answers your question.
0: an episode and start your journey to greatness today.
1: Um, I heard you speak recently and you said something so powerful. You said um, all disease is a violation of the spirit. And I'm wondering, do most doctors recognize that as a violation of the spirit or are in acknowledgement of the role that spirit plays in medicine?
2: I think most doctors are aware of this, uh, but in the hurry-burry of day-to-day work, and when something becomes routine, you can easily forget that it's not routine for the patient. Mm-hmm. For the patient, whatever's happening is anything but routine, even though it may be your everyday work. So, my thesis is that whenever we have any kind of injury, you, know, you break your finger, at one level, it's like, oh, God. You know, it's a fracture of the mid-phalanx of my finger, comminuted, muted, whatever. But at another level, it's, why me? Why now? You know, why did this have to happen? Mm-hmm. And I think with diseases like HIV or cancer, that, that sense of violation, why me, can be huge. And I think modern medicine has increasingly addressed the fractured finger without addressing this sort of sense of why me and, you know, the woundedness.
1: And you say that your experience in Tennessee, in East Tennessee, uh, in the late 80s, when AIDS was so prevalent and nobody even really knew what it was, taught you that even though one could not be cured, one could be healed. Can you talk, talk about that? What is healing without a cure?
2: Yeah, I was sort of humbled by HIV. I went into infectious disease because to me it seemed like the one specialty that was all about cure. You could make an astute diagnosis on someone coming back from the Congo with a strange hemorrhagic fever, and they would rise like Lazarus. And, you know, overnight, we became the people caring for mostly young folks with a fatal illness. And, you know, I I was frustrated that I had nothing to offer these patients. And I remember, out of my frustration, going to some of their houses because they were too ill to come to the clinic, but not too ill to be in the hospital. And whenever I went, my visit would have a profound effect on the family, on the patient. Even though I was going for my own purposes, I was going because it felt incomplete to just not see them, mm-hmm. you know, for, except for the last clinical visit.
1: Do you remember the first time you did that? The first time you decided to go out and see them?
2: I do. Uh, I remember I was in my HIV clinic and, and you get very close to these patients because, you, you know, they're dwindling over a long time and you're have little to offer them but your time when you speak. And the phone rang and it was the mother of one of the patients I'd come to know well to say that he was too weak to come to the clinic but not ill enough to be in the hospital so he wouldn't be coming. And it just sat, sat with me all day and I felt bad about it. I thought if I don't do something I'll never get to see this patient who I've become close to. So that evening I drove out to the trailer where, where he lived and I had the sense that my visit had a profound effect on him, reassuring him in some fashion that I was still there, and helping his parents come to terms with the illness. Because
1: if we can remind everybody, there was a time when nobody was coming to terms with it. People were being ostracized. Literally, I did a show where there was a big town hall meeting and they wanted to throw the whole family out of the community because he'd gone into the pool. So it was a really terrible time and people were awful to each other about it. So, we're here to talk
0: to the town. You wanted to share with us what? Yes. This is a disease of nature. Nature will take care of something that's wrong, it'll eradicate it. And if they were all put them all together without any women, they would be extinct from the face of the earth in no time. First of and all, if they couldn't
1: reproduce, AIDS would kill them off in anyway. A this size, first of so of I, I've had it. For I've every, had it. We've been AIDS trying AIDS to send this down our this town. throats for years. I'm
0: not trying to put You've anything been, down your yes, throat. Yes, you, I'm you have. I'm trying to give you the facts. I've had it. I watched
2: that episode, and I, I, I think that's exactly what was happening, except for the family members. By and large, your own family member, when they're involved, it turns out that family trumps any kind of prejudice you thought you had. Mm. But anyway, I came out of that house, the trailer, and I washed my hands with a fresh towel that they'd given me, and I, I suddenly had this epiphany. I thought, wow, this is what the horse and buggy doctor of... 150, 200 years ago, did so well. They had none of the ability to cure that we now have. But by their presence, they were able to help people come to terms with their illness. They could heal when they could not cure. And then I heard you use this incredible example
1: that, unfortunately, too many people have experienced for themselves of coming home and your door is ajar and you walk in and recognize that Someone's been in your house and all of your things are strewn, and your valuables are missing.
2: Yeah, I love to use that example with my medical students because they can relate. So you come in and everything's been stolen. You're, you, you, you've had two senses of loss. One is precious stuff. Engagement is cash, money is gone. But there's a second kind of loss. It's a sense of violation. Someone came and did this to me. They violated my space. If half an hour later, the police come by and say, here, we got all your stuff, we got it all back, yeah. we caught the person, at that moment you will be cured, but you will not, not be healed. healed. Your sense of violation will be so strong that you might be inclined to leave that apartment. Yeah, I know several people who had to leave their homes, exactly. sell their homes, because they could never get over it. Yeah, And I think all illnesses like that, whether it's relatively minor, like a fracture of a finger, or it's major, there's always a sense of violation. And I think we in Western medicine, increasingly are not addressing that as though if we, if we take care of the technical thing, then this addresses itself.
1: Your second book, The Tennis Partner, which I read after reading The Covenant of Water is about a medical resident addicted to drugs. I was so fascinated to learn, I guess, did I learn it or I already knew it and it just opened me in a way that doctors struggle with addiction. Because it's something i never thought about or don't remember in all the years doing shows about and i've done shows about just about everything because the last thing you want to think is that your doctor has an addiction a drug addiction or your pilot has a drug addiction but i get the sense that there obviously are addicted people in every profession and so doctors would not be exempt but is the experience i i, I was My impression from the tennis partner is that the experience of addiction for doctors is different than other people because the shame is so great.
2: Yeah, I think I was very much like you. I didn't quite know the extent of addiction amongst doctors until I had this very personal experience with David, who was my medical student, a former tennis professional, and then became my intern. And at one point, he told me his past history of addiction, intravenous cocaine, and then he relapsed. In learning about him, I visited uh, a center that cares for physicians with addiction, and there were you know, about 100 people inpatient at the time, and I learned how common this phenomenon was. And I remember in their big A circle equivalent hearing a surgeon talk about how she filled bourbon in her windshield wiper reservoir to take hits between hospital. I heard of a nephrologist who'd been, you know, caught and sent to rehab so many times that whenever he was called for testing, you know, unpredictably, they would just call him up and say, show up, we want to test you. He would catheterize his own bladder, fill it with somebody else's urine, a patient's urine, and then pee it out under observation. And he was only caught when he passed out after using in his own hospital and... In the ICU, his own urine gave him away. I mean, you only had to hear a few stories like that to realize that addiction is a really powerful disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are people who should know better. And it's really not about choice and moral weakness. At some point, it's just out of control. And as you said, when they get caught, uh, there are two very opposed reactions that they have. One is intense shame, so they're very high suicide risk. But the second is immense relief because they knew this was bigger than them. And so why doctors and addiction? I think part of it is access. And it's very interesting, the drugs of choice by specialty. I mean, overall, it's alcohol. But uh, psychiatrists are much more likely to use mood-altering drugs. Emergency medicine physicians, it tends to be cocaine, you know, that Mm -hmm. adrenaline rush. Um, And anesthesiology, it's... The you know very very powerful opiates like fentanyl, sufentanyl, and so on. Wow! Uh, so it's access. It's also hubris—the sense of well, I can prescribe this, so I know what happens with it. Uh, so for all those reasons, I think they are a very special group. The only good news is that when a physician is addicted and caught, they have a tremendous incentive to get sober, and they often, majority of them do because you don't get your license back unless you do. Not true of many, many other professions in which people struggle with the same issue, but nobody really holds them to it in order to keep doing it.
1: You were mentioning earlier that doctors are often attracted to this field because they're trying to heal their own wounds. Have you ever asked yourself what is it it you are trying to
2: heal? Well, I, I think that all of us, I suspect, have almost existential wounds you know Mm where you're born and no matter how loving your parents might be i think a a child feels insecure there are gaps and you know you you try and fill those gaps with various things and the superego fills it with patterns of behavior so i I think i meant it in that general sense Uh, i meet people uh, who feel like they're okay and i've always been okay and i'm envious but i think a lot of people carry (laughs) You know, little things that um, are significant to them don't make sense to anybody else. So, in that sense, I think um, a lot of a lot of physicians go into medicine, I sense, to heal the woundedness in them. Hmm. And an interesting thing happens uh, as I watch them over long careers. I think, um, you know, there there comes a moment when they get caught up in the profession and what they have to do they get maybe a tremendous amount of financial rem- remuneration and and also so much reverence you know like highly revered so
1: it's easy to have a lot of hubris or arrogance or believe that you are untouchable infallible because the way the whole world operate operates and yeah. you know responds to you
2: yeah and i think that they are at sometimes unaware of how hard they've pushed to get to these places. I remember a neurosurgeon telling me who, who had been in this addiction facility, he said he was given a Tylenol with codeine by a colleague of his for his back pain. And that's another story, you know, I mean, for another patient, you might say, you know, your back pain, we'll, we'll get to that. How is mm-hmm. your life? Uh, you know, how much mm-hmm. are you drinking? How much are you smoking? How's your marriage? But with a colleague, it will, it will be like, you know, well, just. Try take this yes. in the old days. And he said he took this Tylenol with codeine and he felt as though this weight that had been on his chest since, before, since pre-med just slid off. And he knew from then on he would be addicted. Wow, so the first was, one? Yeah, the first one. And so I think the thesis I came away with was very few physicians take drugs to produce euphoria. They're taking medications to relieve the dysphoria of their state. A dysphoria they've gotten so used to that it seems almost normal and necessary. And then, you know, something comes along, alcohol or a drug, and it's... Oh, I got that. Not taking it to relieve, not taking it for euphoria,
1: but to relieve the dysphoria. Essentially. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. So let's talk about the book, The Covenant. First of all, I just love saying The Covenant (laughs) of Water. One of our readers, Danielle, has a question. Let's hear it. Hi, I am Danielle Jennings, and I have to say I absolutely loved the book. The way it was written, the way the characters were described, the events, the spaces, everything. I loved it. My question is for Oprah. How and why did you select the book? Oh, well, Danielle, the how is um, I have a team, a very small team, usually one or two people who are reading lots of books and passing them on to me. And I had read many books, um, were all stacked on my desk. And then I came across this book and I kept moving it from one side to the other and moving it to the floor, moving it to another room. And then finally one day I just picked it up and after the first sentence I was drawn in. And here's the way I look at life. And I've felt this way since I was a little girl um, living in rural Mississippi often not being able to be around a lot of people, but my grandmother. And when people would come by, and bring candy, and sometimes my cousins would come in from the city, I would always hold my candy because I always thought it was better if I shared it. It was always going to taste better. I didn't want to have the Snickers bar or the Musketeers bar and eat it if I wasn't sharing it with someone else. And I feel that way about uh, a great piece of writing like the moment I started reading this book, I then was looking for other people to share the experience with. And so one of the great rewards for me, Danielle, is being able to have so many of you now exposed to what I first received in an uncorrected proof manuscript. And I, I just love hearing all of your reactions to the book. You would thought you would have thought I wrote it or something. I, I don't have this gift, this talent, but, um, Understanding how uh, a, a a great story told well, as this one has been, um, can affect and open you up. Just it, it delights me. It gives me great joy to be able to share it with other people. And so that's why.
2: May I add something to? Yeah, the story you may add. Uh, my previous book, Cutting for Stone, was set in <laughs> Africa. It had a lot to do with women and fossils. So I prayed Oprah would pick that book. I lit candles. Oh, no! And so... when No, it, you yeah, didn't tell me that. I did. Yeah, I didn't you tell you You lit that. candles. I'm telling you now, I, I'm a big lighter of candles. If anybody calls me to say something serious is going on, yeah. I, I'm not being facetious. I say, I'm going to light a, a candle, can, light oh, a light candle for you. I have a picture of it. You know, I, I don't know what it means, Aaron, but this is what I do. This is my way of participating with them in the worry that this news has triggered. But I lit a candle, hoping that... Oprah would pick my book. Oh my. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen, which is just, the odds are it doesn't happen, but I had hoped for it. And so when it happened with this book and we finished our call, I got to my knees. Oh. Because it was a reminder that, you know, God's time is not my time no. or our time. So. That candle worked, is what I'm trying to say.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that candle did not go out. That candle never went out. That's
2: so incredible you do
1: that. I do that too.
2: Yeah, but it's a meaningful thing. It's a meaningful thing. To a meaningful do, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else can you do? You're far away, you get this news, mm-hmm. you know. So. Let's talk about your creative
1: process. You said that you used a whiteboard to map out the characters and the intricate plot. You shared a photo of it, and your drawings are.
2: So you, you were an artist, too? Oh, I wouldn't say I'm an artist. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very visual. I think I think visually mm-hmm. when I read a description.
1: So how did seeing the
2: story visually help you to write it? <laughs> it actually didn't help a great deal at all, you know? <laughs> I think I was trying to save time and try to plot the outline, have the architecture of a house, essentially, is what I had in mind. So I, I would draw the characters' faces and You know, since it's on a whiteboard with erasable stuff, I could keep fiddling with it, you know, with my fingers wiping it off till till what was in my head matched what was on the board. And then I would outline these seminal events that were going to happen. But the trouble is, as I started writing, you know, I think writing is mysterious. And as I started putting the characters under pressure, now there's a saying in writing that character is determined by decisions taken under pressure. So I'd put the character under pressure and they would do something very different from what I had planned. And so suddenly the whiteboard was like, you stuck a swimming pool in the middle of where the dining room was supposed to be. So I'd have to go wipe it all off. I'd take Mm -hmm. a photograph first and then start all over again from this new branch point.
1: Characters determined by decisions taken under pressure.
2: I mean, that's a general writing maxim. That's not mine. I don't want to take credit for that. But yeah, think about it. That's life also. Well, but I was going
1: to say, that's life also. Yeah, yeah. It's not just characters that you're building in a story, but it's also our own personal character is determined by decisions under pressure. Marielle has a question. Marielle?
0: Hi, I'm Marielle, and I found the title of the book to be extraordinary and brilliant. I'm curious if you think that the only true agreement that these characters and people have in their life is death uh, based off of all of the sudden loss that occurs in the book. Is that what you meant by the title?
1: A lot of people have asked me that, which is so interesting because the covenant of water comes up many times, various characters talk about that covenant and about what water means. But I think some people are like, okay, so what is the covenant? of water.
2: Yeah, I've always felt that titles ought to be a little mysterious, that, they, you know, that they're meant to be chewed on. And hopefully, as you go through the book, they begin to mean many, many different things for you. Uh, to me, the word covenant had a lot to do with the faithfulness of a, a matriarch mm. and the family and you know, that, that sort of covenant. Water because water was you know, very much the metaphor of Kerala but also because this I family, now want to
1: go to Kerala.
2: I hope you do. I huh. hope you do. And, the, and when this family was plagued by their inability or so, of some people in each generation to actually deal with water. So, you know, in a strange way, their covenant with water was broken until the day they finally sort out the covenant.
1: Uh, I have to say, you vividly transport us to so many other worldly places. First, a property called Parambil, You can almost, I mean, touch and smell and see everything about this mystical setting. Uh, You write about hospitals and you write about universities, a country club, a factory, a leper colony, an exquisite level of detail. Do you see them in your mind?
2: Do you see all this in your mind when you're writing? Yes, I see them, and I'm also drawing on memories uh, of visiting these actual places, actual in the sense like, not the Paramble, but places like Paramble, not mm. the particular leprosarium, but I've certainly visited leprosariums. Hospitals are like my second home, so you know, evoking the images of hospitals in India, hospitals in, you know, elsewhere isn't that hard. And it's, and it's also, I, I, I like that sense of evoking place by going into the greatest detail about something that makes you see, smell, and feel it. Uh, It just doesn't come effortlessly. It takes a lot of revision Mm -hmm. to make it finally leap off the page. Um, But place matters. And I spend a lot of time thinking of place as a character because you are shaped by the place where you're born. Mm. Uh, You know, geography is destiny. My mom, you know, single woman in the sari, answers an ad to go to Africa to teach. And uh, as a result, she meets my father. I'm born in Africa. Uh, I leave that continent to come here and, you know, uh, eventually here I am, I'm talking to you. I actually have a theory that the immigrant is given voice when they come to America, you know. Uh, Our experiences are often the ones before we got to America, but the voice comes out because this great land lets you do that.
1: Did you grow up with a strong sense of faith? Because in all of your writing, there is this underlying faith and spirituality that is evident.
2: I'm not sure I had the spirituality. In fact, as a child, my brother and I resented being dragged to the service for three Mm -hmm. hours where it's going on in a language that neither my brother or I nor my parents understand. It's just this, you know... It's Syriac. It's an ancient language that the priest knows. But the sound is familiar to everyone. It made no sense to me. And I think my older brother and I both sort of left religion or former religion the moment we didn't have to be in church. But I think the observation of the tradition, the sense of how important this was in your parents' lives, never leaves you. And I think, speaking for myself, I gradually navigated my way back to it. And I'm at this place now where, you know, what is what is faith? Uh, it's 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 in the absence of proof you choose to hold some belief. And, and that's exactly how I see it. Uh, in the absence of proof, I choose to believe in certain things, but I especially choose to embrace their rituals because I think they're healing. Mm-hmm. So I had the experience in Fremont, California, going to, there's enough of a community of my people there for them to have their own church. And every other week, the service is in Malayalam and in Syriac, this language that I don't understand. But that you grew up with. That I grew up in. And I went there, and, you know, the same service that used to, you know, just drive me to insanity in terms of boredom as a seven-year-old, made to stand there, standing there mm-hmm. for two and a half hours. no, No sitting down, no pews, no kneeling. It moved me to tears this time. Mm. The familiarity of those incantations, and I don't know. it's all utterly mysterious. I think I'm at the age where I'm accepting that the thinking, joining part of me is is just that. It's the tiny little flotsam on the surface, and you know the deeper stuff requires you to just to be just to be open and receptive, and to me, prayer is a form of just being open. Mm. I don't know what it means. I don't try to convert anybody. Uh, but I'm I'm open to the mystery of things that have happened like this here. So, so, right, so prayer
1: is a form of being open to the mystery of life.
2: Yeah, I think it's also expressing your intention, mm-hmm. you know. When I pray, I'm praying for my children. I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't always been the greatest father, but I, you know, I sort of think of each one of them at night before I sleep. I pray mm-hmm. for you know the people i love in my family but then you're also praying for a certain outcome are you praying to a are
1: you praying to what you call god are you praying to you know I, I always loved having conversations with sydney portier who would always say the forces of life do you have a name for what
2: you Yeah no it? i'm i'm not coy about it since i was raised in the christian tradition yeah. i'm praying to jesus and god mm-hmm. but i also feel like these are all labels that people come to from Yes. many different directions. I mean, I went to a Hindu temple in Chivandrum mm-hmm. in Kerala, one of the famous old temples. And uh, I, I, you know, you have to just wear a mundu, you're shirtless from the top. And the assumption is that you're Hindu when you walk in. And I remember walking through the stone fortress barefoot and arriving at this door where by special dispensation, you could see the reclining figure of Shiva. But he's so huge stretching from here to there that all you see is one hand. Mm. And I remember a force, I mean, glimpsing that with the throng of worshipers, feeling like someone had just punched me.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna ask you, have you, so many of your characters uh, in both Cutting and Cutting for Stone and in The Covenant of Water have had mystical spiritual experiences. And I was wondering, uh, how can you write that if you haven't had yourself?
2: Well, I think I've I've had some not quite as dramatic as yes. some of them in, the characters have, but it's interesting how in the world of my grandparents, my mother, you know, in their vernacular, things like ghosts and so on are pretty commonplace. Right. Spirits and ghosts and poltergeists and so these were not abstract things to them; they were real and accepted. And accepted, and, except except and real. therefore, to you, to some degree, they become also real. I think in our postmodern world, we're so exacting in the proof we want that, uh, you know, we, we, we almost miss out on the richness of the mythical. Yeah,
1: you know? it's why when our main character leaves home to be wed at 12 and she enters her new home and there's a ghost in the basement, she just accepts that there's a ghost in the basement.
2: There's just like... Yeah, I mean, the sense that these spirits reside and they have you know, and I think some of that is carried over from Hinduism, and in, mm-hmm. in our marriage rituals, we still have little Hindu traditions. So mm-hmm. we tie something called a minnu around the bride's neck, and it's basically a tulsi leaf, but it has a little cross on it. You know, mm-hmm. so I think some of this is also the richness of India and the grand tradition of myth and folklore and religion, going back centuries and centuries. And, I think after wandering away as an adolescent and college student, and later in my in the ripeness of my uh, you know my days now, I feel more than ready to embrace mystery. I don't feel mm. the need to have proof delivered mm. to me. I'm, mm. I you know my existence, yours, is the proof. Is the proof. This magical moment is the proof.
1: Tell me, I, I can see in your writing and in your person that you have great reverence for life. When have you most experienced awe?
2: I think paradoxically I've experienced awe in the face of observing great suffering. Hmm. So I've had the great privilege of uh, being at the bedsides of, you know, privilege or misfortune, being at the bedsides of people, you know, on their deathbed. and. Uh, I've taken care of more than my share of physicians uh, dying, both in the HIV era and beyond. And, um, you know, there's something about when life is shortened like that suddenly, you know, especially if it's unexpectedly shortened without much warning, it becomes almost the purest moment. And, you know, sometimes in that suffering, these individuals will tell you things and share things with you that, you know, you can spend years wandering this world and never, quite get that same message, you know. So I felt that in the HIV era, for example, I was in awe. Uh, These were young men my age, you know, and society was quick to characterize them as um, whatever, you know, with, with slurs and call them effeminate, whatever you like. But to me, I learned about manhood from those men. You know, they were the bravest souls I ever saw and they were they were glad that they'd been adventurous and traveled and done all the things that, you know, many, many of us haven't done. You know, it was part of their persona. Mm -hmm. And uh, in death, they were incredibly gracious, courageous. It's, It's one of the reasons why I became a writer, because I remember one of them telling me, I'm so glad that I got to do this. I got to do that. He says, "I have a few regrets. I wish I could have been mayor of Key West." <laughs> well, he never got to do that. But then he went on to say, "But I've done so many things that um, I have no regrets." And you know, hearing that kind of sentiment, I thought, "Well, if I don't do this, will I not have a regret?" And so, this is why—that's why I cashed in my my position and you know went to write I'm not sure it was the smartest thing I think it cost me my marriage it was harsh on my young children my older two boys and uh, but you know you can't go back and fix that mm-hmm. you can just you can make amends when they let you, where they let you and I have a great relationship with my sons now I'm not proud of all the stuff I put them through that represented my my turmoil you know
1: yes well we have only just begun this journey of the Covenant of Water, and in our next episode, we are diving into Part one and two. So if you haven't read it yet, grab your copy of The Covenant of Water, and together we're going to explore the twists and the turns, the spiritual truths, the heart-wrenching moments with the author, Dr. Abraham Verghese. Thank you to you, our readers, for all of your questions. And thank you to you. Thank, thank you, me. Oprah. Thank you, Abraham. <laughs> I know this novel has made an impact on everyone who reads it. I'd love to hear your thoughts and how it has impacted you. Find us at Oprah's Book Club on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And check out Oprah Daily for even more about The Covenant of Water and author Abraham Verghese.
2: A tale that leaves its imprint on a listener. The Covenant
1: of Water audiobook is narrated by the author, Abraham Verghese. It's available now wherever books are sold. Until next time, goodbye, everybody.